Hello and welcome to the Content Design Podcast. My name is Vanessa Barlow, I'm a content designer and content strategist. In today's episode, I talk to Scott Kuby. Uh, this is actually our first international episode, thanks to the fact that we all need to meet up on Zoom these days. Um, so it was great to talk to Scott, not only to learn from his expertise, but to get a bit of an idea of how they approach content in the US specifically. Scott is the author of the book Writing for Designers and so he's got some really good points around um, how to immerse yourself in a design team and to show that content is as important a part of design as any visuals are. Scott has also worked for the content consultancy Brain Traffic, so he has some great ideas on running workshops with senior stakeholders and how to use worksheets and other quick tips to get buy-in to your content strategy and to ensure it is adopted where it needs to be. So it was great talking to Scott and hope you enjoy the episode. You describe yourself as a designer who writes, and I know your kind of specialism is often around working with designers. Could you tell me a bit about how you approach that as a content person and how you get them to kind of best understand the importance of words within their design? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I have found over time that what tends to be interesting to people, designers, developers, whoever's making the thing, uh, they have questions. Everyone has questions. Like, the, I mean, a lot of the design process is like we have a we have a whole bunch of questions, and then we go do some user research, or we uh, sketch some things, or we have a heated debate, or we go look at what the competitors are doing, um, and that gives us more data. And now we have you know maybe preliminary or final answers to those questions. So now there's fewer questions. Um, and when I think about being a content person broadly in a design process, I feel like, like being someone who can help answer those questions that are harder for non-content people to answer is, is the value that I bring. Um, so, you know, with that respect, I don't do a whole lot of trying to convince people that words are valuable. I don't do a whole lot of trying to convince people that they should care about content design or know what it is, that they should care about UX writing or know what it is. Because they, if they were going to be interested in it, they would be interested in it. Um, and they're probably not. They're interested in whatever they're interested in. Um, and I find that in a, especially in a UX flavored or user centered flavored design process, the thing that we're all interested in is creating a successful experience for users. Um, so, you know, so that tends to be more of what I focus on. I do a lot of, of kind of I mean, literally in documentation, like writing out, here are the questions I can help us answer. Which of these do we want to answer first? Which ones are we struggling with? Um, and sort of focusing on it that way. Because um, I think if you can demonstrate to people over and over again that you are someone who can help them answer those kinds of questions, you know, who really are our priority audiences, uh, what should we call this thing, um, what you know, how do we increase conversions here? Whatever it might be, like those things that like, where it feels like some sort of design solution or moving components around or rearranging the order of the flow isn't going to fix it. How do we fix it? Um, You know, a lot of times it's it's some sort of communication or messaging or language problem. and, And that's where us word people can step in. 
In your experience, have you found that with your approach, you've kind of been able to get in early enough and, and get sort of fully immersed in a project when you would need to be? Or have you sometimes found that you or the agency you're working for have been brought in a bit late and people are kind of trying to tag words onto more of the end part of the design? Um, no. So I have found the magic trick to get content people brought in early. So if everyone listening wants to put um, $1,000, uh, unmarked bills, self-addressed stamped envelope, uh, send it to me and I'll send you the secret. No, uh, absolutely not. It, you know, you, we never get brought in early enough. In When I've been a consultant um, or a freelancer, I mean, I think the challenge there is a lot of times, my work, especially as a content strategist, the projects are huge. I mean, we're not just talking about five new articles. We're not talking about, you know, overhauling a landing page. We're talking about potentially transforming tens of thousands of pages of content. We're talking about consolidating multiple large enterprise scale dot com websites. And it is challenging in those conversations to get people to care about content. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that a lot of perceptions, not even amongst designers, but among executives, business leaders, like their perception of what the content questions are or what the content problems are tends to be pretty narrow, right? I mean, they, they sort of think about final execution and like the marketing copywriting and, and sort of the presentation layer. And they may not even really know, prob they probably don't know a lot of them what a content model is. They may not know that their business is underpinned and powered by this conceptual information architecture because um, I don't think they teach that stuff in business school, which is just fine. Um, so, you know, we, you have to be comfortable, I think, jumping in where you can jump in. Um, what I have gotten better at, I hope, over time is reframing, uh, which I think of as, as a, des a design technique, a design thinking technique. Um, I like the way that the practitioner Steven Anderson um, talks about reframing a lot. Um, but just sort of being someone who can come in and sort of go, hmm, yeah, okay, that's, that's interesting. Uh, you know, what happens if we talk about this problem this way? Um, what happens if we were to take half an hour later today to sketch out some ideas about how this might work. And so I think getting hung up on like where and when you get brought into the process. And I, I've, I do a lot of mentoring calls with um, more junior practitioners and, you know, they're always pulling their hair out, getting very like, like emotionally frustrated of like, no one values us and they don't bring us into the process early enough. And I don't feel validated. I'm like, well, you know, it sucks. It absolutely sucks. But like, if you can't learn to roll with those punches, you're not going to be very good at this work. Um, you, you have to learn to be okay with that to a certain extent, advocate for your value as much as you can, prove your value as much as you can, um, and do the best with what you can <laughs> whenever you get brought in. In an in-house situation, hopefully that gets better over time because people will understand that the project was hard and then they brought you in and then it got a little bit easier. And if that ends up being the case a lot, if you are building connections and networking with people internally, um, staying abreast of projects coming down the pipeline, speaking up about the value you can bring, um, it will get better. Um, I, I think my sense from the, the number of times I hear this question and my worry is that too many content practitioners have a passive approach to this and they wait for requests to land on their deck, uh, a desk rather than like going out into the organization and looking for places to add value. Yeah, exactly. As you said, certainly in my experience and some of the people I've been interviewing and things, there is this idea of, 
we want this seat at the table and we don't always get it but there's an element of we've got so many tools at our disposal that we can use to fight for that seat and and start bringing ourselves in more yeah and you know too I, I love all of that and you mentioned how I kind of I frame what I do as as design to a certain extent if there are seats for designers great be a designer what's 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 so wrong with that you know um, I, I I don't find um, that it is has been particularly helpful in my career to say I am the word person I only deal with the words you must bring me in when words are involved only I can work on the words uh, what I find is more helpful is to say um, especially like if you have a I mean, I, you know, job titles, I've got opinions there, but you know, if, if you have a, an impressive sounding job title, if you're an information architect, my goodness, there's probably only one at your whole company. If you're a lead content designer, whoa, nice, right? If you are like the director of UX writing, very nice. You are an extremely senior member of the design team. You are a member of the design team, or you should think, and I'm not saying that, yeah, okay, well, I don't report to the director of the UX department. Fine, fine, fine. But when people come together to do work, when a group of humans assemble to build a thing using user-centered design processes, that's a design team. Whatever the org chart says, and amongst that group of people, you are probably a pretty darn senior user experience practitioner as a content designer as a UX writer, what have you. I don't run into a lot of writers who can hang in those roles that are extremely junior. So you have a lot to bring to the table. You have, you know, all kinds of things about user-centered design techniques. Be a designer on that team. And as part of that team, advocate for words. That's what my approach has been. Um, and I find that that helps you be part of the process earlier because, well, of course, we're going to involve the designers because we have to, it's a design project. We have to design a thing. And then certain designers will care more about the words. Some will care more about the composition. Some will care more about the sequencing. Some will care more about um, the structure and architecture. And, you know, it all comes out in the wash. Definitely. That's made me think about actually the kind of other end of the scale where you as a content person are completely immersed in the design team exactly as you described and people have really seen the value of content what you can do you've got some great stats under your belt where you've proven how your changes did a year on year 72 percent increase whatever it was mm. but then you hit the point where actually you as one person one specialist are very very in demand there's multiple projects going on, uh, multiple streams that perhaps have each got a UX designer, um, you know, more visual based designer on, you're the one person who's got your specialism. How have you, have you, I guess, found yourself in that position? And what kind of techniques have you used to maybe enable um, the designers to kind of perhaps run with things without you, um, but still maintaining that kind of standard that you'd be looking for if you had been able to be more hands-on with it? Yeah, no, that's, um, I have been in that situation. Um, I, I know there's, there's plenty of practitioners out there that probably have more experience with this than I do. Um, but I, I think it's something that was really formative, a uh, very formative role in my career. And a lot of what I base the kind of methodologies in my book around um, is I spent a few years working at a company called Wolfram Research. And when I joined, I think my first job title was uh, the very euphemistic user interface writer. And I was a member of the design team. My boss was the director of user experience, I think her title was. 
uh, and the entire rest of the design team were UX designers uh, of you know varying seniorities. And so I I just got dropped right into okay, there's 12 designers and they all have their own products and product managers and business analysts making requests of them and they're all producing wireframes and specifications that have words in them. So help them out. And yeah, you know, there's trepidation at first. Some, a few of folks jumped right in. Um, eventually, you know, proved all, as you just said, you, you, you build that value. So now you're in demand. And I found that a lot, what worked well in that environment in particular was to have more of an editorial approach to it, which is to say I was really focused on like cadence and frequency and less like I was less focused on projects. I sort of let the designers like think about their projects and what their timelines and deadlines were. Um, and I focused more like almost in a like intense, like it was almost like an intensive mentorship with each of the designers on language. And we just had, we, I had standing meetings with all of them on like a Monday or Tuesday and in that standing meeting, it would be like, show me everything you worked on last week, you know, since our last one of these rapid fire questions about the words, language, basically giving them like sort of homework assignments. Like, why don't you go, go think about this or go take a run at this or man, I, you know, this is, you're right. This is going to be a really critical touch point. We probably want me to write it because that's ostensibly my expertise. What I need from you to keep this efficient, go take a run at it. Go put in bullet points. Um, I like I learned from Biz Sanford. She calls it protocopy, I think, up at, at the Shopify team. So being very like efficiency and cadence focused, I think helped a lot. I think it really varies depending on your team and their comfort with words, how well making tools or style guidelines or any of that kind of stuff is going to work. Um, I have a slide in one of my, my decks that people seem to like um, that just says rules don't make writers, which has been my experience. Like you can't give people 101 rules and best practices and have them suddenly magically feel really comfortable doing the writing. Um, that's why I like content design, right? Because it's a method of writing. Like it's, you could get you could get the book and you could follow, like do these steps. And this is a way to get the writing done. Um, I think what I have in my book is a way to get the writing done. So yeah, I, I think a lot of frequent check-ins is helpful. Um, I think doing that too, like the more that I can teach um, coach, I guess, designers on how to ask the kinds of questions that I would have asked if I was in the room as the word person, that's how we can keep working efficiently. Because like, you can't be at every touch point and crit and check in when there's 12, 15, 50, you know, odd designers that you're supporting. Um, so you need to sort of like, it's more that it's not so much that I need them to be good writers. I, I don't really, I need them to be comfortable putting any words in the wireframes that helps a lot. Um, and I need them to think a little bit more like me so that they could anticipate my questions and pop a few of them into a stakeholder meeting um, so that we don't lose a week of like getting that answer back um, that, you know, when they bring something to me, we can just keep going. Did you have any issues where the proto copy kind of hangs on too long or they've become too attached to it, too used to it. And actually then you get more kickback about any changes you make. I'm just thinking back hmm. to um, I've been in digital content now for a long time and kind of before content and content design and the discipline developed in the way that it did and you're thinking more in terms of kind of copywriters and the words being a bit separate sometimes when there had been 
what yeah what we'd often call placeholder copy in designs if that had stayed in too long the design process had gone too far you had a real battle to get them away from the placeholder copy even though it was only ever meant to be temporary yeah so in this particular role um in my time at wolfram uh i did not have that problem and I think this was just an aberration. I can definitely imagine that being the case. Um, I think the reason we did not have that problem is that there were some uh, very energetic stakeholders who had very strong opinions shared strongly about language, opinions shared profanely sometimes even. Uh, And so I think there was a culture where the designers were like, man, I'm very happy to not have anything that I quote unquote wrote go in for review you know so they were like yep get it get it out of here you you step in front of that that bullet and take that heat so yeah so that that can happen um i think there are you know something i've i do in my own work um it's harder to kind of coach i've found it harder to coach a whole team to work this way like in my own work like i always make protocopy uh hot pink because it just like that's sort of a like a fidelity hack right it looks very not done if it's if it's very bright pink um, and you know, you could, you could do other things or put it set in a certain font or something. Um, I, I do think that, that at some point, like tracking the fidelity of the text, like ha- you have to plan for that. Um, and it's going to be different in every culture and department. Um, but whether that is just like the designers taking notes on what's been approved and what hasn't been approved, if it's putting into some sort of system where you could actually, you know, sign off and comment on each of the strings that are visible, um, that, that fidelity tracking is, is very hard. Um, and I think, you know, from what I see from the questions people ask and what the industry is struggling with, I, I wish I could have walked into this conversation today with all the answers, but I feel like we're all still, still uh, sort of figuring that out collectively. One of the kind of, I guess, key elements of approaching any kind of content project is to get to know the audience really well, um, particularly obviously to make sure that what you're creating with the designers is relevant and clear to them and inclusive. Have you got any kind of particular go-to techniques or I guess data sources that you usually like to use when you're kind of starting off and trying to get to know the audience? Hmm, Getting to know the audience, you know, that's going to depend a good bit on my role for sure. I think that when I've done um, what I think of as strategy setting engagements. So, you know, as a content strategist, I am helping a team or organization make decisions about their strategy, right? Like who our audience is, what, um, where we're going to play, how we're going to win, all that classic strategy stuff. Um, you know, some of the, the tactics and methods we're going to use um, to execute this strategy. And getting to know the audience for that kind of thing, um, I actually find that like a, it doesn't have to be a lot of them, but I, I do really enjoy just one-on-one user interviews, um, just like sort of discovery style interviews. I find that six, eight, ten interviews, I, I don't think I've ever done more than 10. Um, unless they have tons of very different sorts of audiences, um, can be extremely revealing. I like to do that after I've maybe done some sort of preliminary strategy conversations with the team that I'm working with, just as a really good gut check to know like, okay, the whole team is like, the, the, you know, the, the organization I'm working with, they're all fired up about this new thing that they're going to do and they're going to launch this new 
central portal that's going to be user-centered and make everyone's life easy and give them all kinds of information about this. And, you know, there are all kinds of complicated and robust methodologies to uncover user needs. Um, I think that's the kind of thing, like the big picture strategy or vision, like you can gut check that pretty quickly in, in six or eight interviews with people and just, you know, fishing around the edges of it and like, you know, well, tell me about this kind of thing. Or do you, do you, do you have, you know, do you ever find yourself looking for this kind of information? And to hear people talk about it, you either know like, oh my gosh, yeah, it sounds like there's a real need here or nope, nobody's going to give a hoot. Um, this is, this is something that I need to step in and reframe quickly. So I like it for that. I think for, um, as a UX writer, when I've done more, um, you know, classic kind of content design work or just writing interface copy, you know, if you're able to go out there and just see actual messages, like written messages and communication from the audience, I think that can be really nice. Um, I'm sure we all no, the classic best source now is our customer service teams. So if you ever have a chance to look at support logs or through side-by-sides with customer service reps, um, that's an incredibly good way to get typically a lot of information quickly on like how users are talking about the service and how they're framing their frustrations and that sort of thing. I think internal search can be, can be really interesting too, um, just to see the language that people are using to try to access things. Uh, my experience is that pretty much everyone feels like their internal search is just horribly broken and they don't like how it works. And so they're disinclined to look at it, you know, and they're like, oh, well, no one ever finds what they need there. You know, so we've got a project to fix search queued up, you know, for, you know, three quarters from now. And I'm like, okay, well, granted, it might be broken, but people didn't know it was broken before they typed something in uh, and clicked search. So we can at least see what they were hoping to find, uh, even if it was not successful. Absolutely. And um, I found as well, sometimes plugging into um, social channels is good for picking up on language. People really don't hold back when they're complaining on a company's Facebook page or whatever it is. Um, So you can identify pain points, but also see exactly how they're kind of phrasing things and, and how that might help you either pick specific words or at least kind of think about how you're kind of pitching your tone for the actual. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially for, even if not for vocabulary, like I think especially for a tonal match, like you you sort of need to know like how, I don't, I don't quite know how to phrase this, but just, yeah, it's sort of like how serious is the audience when they talk about this issue, you know, for, for looking for that, that tonal match. And a lot of times, you know, as a brand, like we want to be like, just maybe like, half a rung or one rung above that the level of like the casual conversation about it right you don't want to be like three levels stuffier and more buttoned down than your audience is about it um you also want to avoid like being like a hey fellow kids you know kind of thing where you're like right at their level um which i think is is also a pretty bad look Yes. Yeah, exactly. You've got to, again, got to make these professional judgments. And, and like you said, remind yourself you're a senior member of the design team and you, yeah, exactly. you know what you're doing to make a, make a call on something like that. And that's, you know, and that's the kind of research too, where I think, um, I don't, I mean, my experience, you know, maybe I, maybe I should just be a more diligent and research minded person, but like, I, I love to do audience and user research. I, I, and, and I get a lot of questions to like, how do we get budget for research and how do we get the client to care about this? For the questions that I have usually as a content strategist and a UX writer, most of the time, it really doesn't take that much research to get those answers or at least get more confidence in an assumption um, to move forward with. And so I think a lot of that stuff, you can just kind of, you can just do it. 
you know, find an afternoon where like, I don't, I don't think you have to like budget out. Like, you know, how do I get the permission to go spend four, go spend an afternoon with the customer service team? Like just ask them, see if you can hang around for an afternoon and you're going to learn a lot. And like you said, in the sort of like being an expert practitioner sense, like you will be able to pick up more quickly that you can apply to your work than some random person doing that research on your behalf might be able to because they you know what to listen for um so you know i as a, i think i have this in the book but like as a meta kind of thing like if research is happening i want to have a chance to ride along with it you know that's always something i'm looking for like if we're going to be doing usability testing if we're going to be interviewing people you know i don't always have my own questions but I, it's, it's very nice to just be in the room if someone else is doing it for sure yeah completely and again it's a good use of resources isn't it you don't want to be either wasting your time trying to repeat something that's being done elsewhere or like you said fighting for budget that's actually allocated elsewhere that you can just you can just be in the room you can just be part of and yeah there are so many there are elements that can be frustrating but actually when you reframe that frustration i.e i can't get any budget for user research i can't get a user research on the project yes that's that's a barrier but actually it's one you can in many ways overcome with what you can do yourself um, or like you said just proactively don't even ask permission just show them the great relevant content that you've created off the back of some of the stuff that you've uh, taken the initiative to do yeah or you know if there is something where you feel like you need to get you know if if you're working in a complicated space or maybe you're working in a space around like a very sensitive issue you know if it's some sort of healthcare finance thing um, where maybe people are less publicly forthcoming about how they really feel or, or what they really need with respect to it. I still think a little guerrilla research can be a nice thing because that can help open the door, right? Because everyone, because th- I mean, my experience is even, even good, well-meaning people, like a lot of times being like being a manager, like a, a, a product or pro- especially project manager, like you, like you, yes, you care about the users and the quality of the product, but ultimately like your default is like keep things moving right? Like the, the default position. And it's, that's just natural. I don't even say there's a criticism, but like the, your default position is like, I'm going to make the choice that keeps things moving forward. And so sometimes you need a little bit of independent work to be able to reframe or to press pause or to at least slow the train down a little bit and get people to pay attention. I'm interested actually thinking about your content strategy work and obviously how that can be quite a very big zoomed out piece compared to when you're in the middle with the UX writing and more zoomed into a project. When you've, I guess, either been um, brought into an organization, who kind of would you say needs to be involved in that content strategy piece in terms of getting buy-in? Thinking specifically from what I've seen here in the UK is sometimes there could be quite a big difference in what a content person can do, depending on whether someone at quite a senior level, director or, or similar, has said, we've got a problem, we need content to sort this out. And they've kind of got that buy-in already from a very senior position, compared mm-hmm. to someone who is maybe, as you were kind of describing, the head designer in a UX team that you're part of, they bring you in. And actually, there isn't that buy-in higher up and therefore there can be more of a battle to to get things live. Um, who would you say you've kind of found it's been really helpful to involve in either content strategy meetings or maybe inviting them to crits, whatever it is that you do to 
get them on board with your strategy so you can actually have the confidence it's going to be implemented? Yeah, um, that's that's a really interesting question. And I like um, you, you introduced both of the phrases that are in my head when I think about this. Um, I tend to, um, especially more recently, like I've been thinking about buy-in to a content strategy and onboarding to a content strategy a little bit differently. And, you know, buying in, who needs to be bought in? This is either is or is going to sound like a tautology, but the people you need bought into the content strategy are anyone who could, with their position and authority and influence, unilaterally make that not the strategy, right? Or like make some part of it not the strategy, which is to say like if you want to, uh, for let's say it's a, let's keep it simple. We have a website content strategy, not organization-wide, not enterprise-wide, like just the strategy. We've got like a channel-specific content strategy, the purpose of the site, prioritized audiences, and so on. Um, if there's a team of eight well-meaning people that research and work together and they decide that the most important audience for this website that we want to reach and support is audience A, and there's someone else in the organization that could come along and say, no, absolutely not. It's audience B. This, all this copy is junk. We're writing for the wrong audience. We need to fix this. Um, that person needs to be bought into the content strategy. Um, and, you know, so typically, like, it's really great to have like, uh, depending on the size of the organization, it's great to have like executive buy-in. Um, I think typically like you need an executive sponsor. I think practically you tend to need like director level buy-in. So if there's directors of marketing, directors of sales, directors of product, whatever they might be. I know different organizations use different levels, but sort of the person who like, you know, makes the call on the time of the personnel in their branch to the org chart. They're the people who decide how those people spend their time. Um, you need the director of those people bought in because you're going to need everybody's time at some point to like have a content strategy. Um, so those are the folks who need to be bought in. I think as far as onboarding goes, um, you mentioned, you know, like, um, like who much you invite to crits. Um, I think that's anyone that where you think it would just be helpful for that person to understand how we're thinking about our audiences. Um, I think there's some obvious candidates. If you've got writers, pretty good to have them onboarded to the content strategy. And I think in a lot of organizations, we tend to underestimate just how many writers we have because a lot of there tends to be a handful of people that have some form of writing in their job description but there's like a lot of people in the company that actually do it you know so they might be in a customer service role um they might be developers that have their whole own fiefdom of content like the technical and api documentation or the api errors or, or what have you and i think the more that you can sort of onboard those people to content strategy the better to me that's like doing road shows Sure, inviting them to crits, showing them how you work. I'm really big on like worksheets and, and tools that sort of like take how I would think about a problem as a content strategist and put it into a worksheet and make that like a, a not like not a set of rules that someone has to follow, but instead like a helpful thing that like helps someone ask and answer the right question um, as if I was in the room, but I don't have to be in the room. Um, so just anyone who's doing any sort of planning across the company, I think it's, it's nice to get them onboarded. I think the scale that you mentioned is really important as well, because something like a 
crit is often, you know, usually end to end within an hour, if not even quicker, something like a worksheet that's much more likely to be looked at and fit into somebody's working day than a full tone of voice guide, like you said, with endless rules and a whole massive A to Z of all the different ways you're meant to spell things, whatever. Often I think organizations ask for that kind of thing because they think they need it and then you drill down and go but who's going to use it because short of maybe me or like another specific content designer on my team we're going to be the only people who will bother plowing through this um Mm. it's really important to think about people's i think when you're trying to convince people and and like you said bring them into us bring them on board with a strategy it's also really important to think about what their day looks like and what how you fit into that and what time have they got available and I guess kind of yeah the quicker and the more succinct and the at a glance the better in some cases just because otherwise it's just going to remain unopened or unlooked at. Yeah and it's it's really easy to get a reputation to you know in the spirit of trying to be collaborative and have buy-in like you could pretty quickly get the reputation as someone who is maybe just a little bit of a burden right and you're just you're asking too much of people and making too many demands of their time or attention um and so I, i think yeah the applying what we know about communication and messaging and prioritizing messaging and frequency and all those things that we've learned as content people like we have to use those um same lessons internally as we communicate things out um, and like even down to where I always start on engagements is like, let's understand what we mean when we say the thing. Like, what do we mean by content design? What do we mean by content strategy? What do we mean by an audience? Um, I think it's helpful to know if, if especially if you have some co- content people you're collaborating with, come to an understanding of what you mean by buy-in. Does buy-in mean like full-throated vocal shouting it from the rooftop support? That's a pretty high bar for a lot of people who don't care that much about content. Um, Does buy-in mean isn't going to get in our way? That's a lot easier to achieve. You know, sometimes, you know, what I look for a lot um, as I think, think about it now, um, like buy-in for me, I think there's a hundred and one way, hundred and one ways to do this. um, But a good sign of it is if during the process, someone feels like they were part of making the thing. You know, I think a a crit could do that. That's a little further downstream, you know, but like thinking about strategy setting, having something in a workshop format, if you do a good job of facilitating, it's like everyone who participates in the workshop did the work. Uh, Even if what someone did was like mostly sit quietly and listen attentively and smile and nod at the right moments and made a few contributions of during the brainstorming work on post-it notes, they're going to typically come out of that room feeling like they did a lot more than maybe they really did. Um, and they're going to be pretty more likely to defend that strategy uh, in the future. What you alluded to in the attitude there, of just like looking for those little opportunities to get folks involved, um, that, that buy-in can build up over time. And you're building trust as well, aren't you? Even if someone in a workshop doesn't say very much, they're seeing your expertise and some of your methodology that you're using. So it might be you don't hear much from them in the future because actually they're like, yeah, do you know what? They've got it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we had um, uh, the craziest thing would happen when I, so I spent about four years um, at Brain Traffic, which is content strategy consultancy. Um, And so I did a lot of times, um, part of those engagements, I'd go in, spend a whole day in a room for a content strategy workshop. And usually there was someone like who was the boss of all the people in the room that were like officially scheduled for the workshop, you know, so it'd be like a VP of marketing or like a, a director 
yeah, like a, a VP or director of marketing often, or, or maybe like customer experience. Um, and they would always want to uh, like introduce, you know, they, they would always say like, oh, like, you know, my schedule is, is jam packed. I'm going to be there for the first hour. And then, you know, I, I'm very much looking forward to the results. Um, like that, we would hear that. I would hear that all the time. And so then that VP would come in for like the first 20, 30 minutes. Uh, you know, maybe 45 was what they had planned on. And we get rolling and we get into content strategy and I start showing them all those questions the content strategy can answer about your big complicated digital world. And then I, t I would tend to start to see like notebooks would open, right? And like VP of marketing notebooks open. A lot of notes start getting taken. Then often they step out of the room for five minutes, which is the going to clear their schedule for the day. Uh, and then they would come back in and they would never leave. Right. And like that, like, like whatever the outcomes of the workshop are eight hours later, like I already knew that day was a victory because someone came out of it like thinking they started the day thinking that this wasn't going to be that interesting or relevant to their level. Because, oh, this is just about content operations and how we do the writing. And like, nope, actually, this is like super critically important stuff and I need to care about it. And like, how, how can we bring you back out? Um, because we need more of that. Exactly. You know, creating space for that to happen. If you're able to do that as a practitioner, oh my gosh, that's a huge win. Something I'm quite interested to hear your thoughts on is around thinking about the future of content strategy and content design, particularly in our current circumstances where for at least the near future, we're all going to be doing a lot more remote working and sometimes a lot of the kind of face-to-face -face stuff we'd rely on or more particularly as we were describing about trying to get yourself immersed within a design team and then now that design team is actually all working from their own locations how yeah. do you think that's going to kind of affect our approach and are there any sort of barriers that it's going to put up or actually is it more about kind of new opportunities that we might not have had before what are what are your thoughts about how it might look over the next few months you know, so I, I'm, wor I mean, I'm worried about a lot because the world's in a very weird place right now. Um, but with respect to our discipline um, and, and doing content work, um, I'm worried about something. And, the, and the, the something that I'm worried about is I worry that too many folks and teams are going to backslide into lots of asynchronous kind of discussion around content and a lot more what you like things that used to be collaborative we're gonna we're gonna slip back into them being handoffs um it's because it because it just practically it's harder like you can't just pop by somebody's desk it's harder to like it, it seems so easy especially for in different time zones or somebody's you know not signed into slack because they went down to the grocery store or whatever <laughs> like um it's going to be a little harder to touch base and i have found that it is so critically important even if the understanding is my job is to write all of the final copy in this flow right? For, a, for an app, let's say, even if that's very clearly understood to be my role, I don't want someone to just email me those uh, mock-ups and say, you know, send it back when the writing is done. Like I want to have a handoff, like a literal handoff, not, um, 
with the designer and have them talk me through it and have a chance to ask questions and those sorts of things. So something that has worked for me, because um, I've, I've done this work remotely for a number of years, even um, with um, when I was at Wolfram for two of those years, I was remote and the rest of the UX team was co-located. So they're all in the office and I'm not. And the I know we all love looking at each other's faces because we're all trapped in our homes and lonely. Um, I am anyway. Uh, but I think the more important button for everyone to start using is the share screen. Get something up on the screen and like do the work together, right? Um, I think having someone step, like what I would end up doing a lot is stepping into kind of the facilitator's role, even if there wasn't a formal agenda for a conversation, but like if you're gonna be taking notes in a conversation, take those notes in public, right? Like put them up on the screen, um, show people what you're capturing out of what they're saying and don't, you know, if you've got some fancy tool where you can both be in there at the same time, that's great. I, I feel like a grandpa now with all this dynamic stuff. I was used to just, you know, OmniGraffle and screen share uh, was got it done for me, but you know, like having, looking at the same thing, looking at documentation together, um, I think is really critically important. So that's my concern. It slash my advice is like, don't, fall back into some sort of Jira comment hell where everyone is just like, you know, like copying and pasting text, like, like talk about it. It's still, you, we still need to talk about the work for sure. It's interesting what you're saying about, you know, sharing your screen or even taking notes live. There's that element of, I guess, vulnerability that maybe puts people off that side of things, but actually it's so important to embrace that vulnerability because the more you share early work even something as simple as notes someone can spot that you maybe I don't know missed something they thought was important or slightly misinterpreted something and you're literally overcoming that issue right at the earliest earliest possible stage um you just have to maybe not worry too much about making a live typo or something that's not that's yeah. not the most important yeah part. It, you know yeah it's it's intimidating for sure you know um but I, I have a project i'm working on now um which is in a a space that i just don't know very much about like they have they have a ton of brands um and they also it's just it deals with a technical subject matter and so the the team is really great and helpful but they they say so many words that i just i don't know like i like, i don't know what that word is but we've been collaborating um the whole thing's in a google share drive so every every document every agenda every piece of notes i'm taking it, it vulnerable is absolutely the word for it. I feel very vulnerable. You know, we're collaborating. We're all on the screen together. Um, we can all see each other's faces if we want to and their, you know, space backgrounds, whatever fun stuff they've got going. Uh, but we're also in the document together. And what's been really nice is it actually cuts down a lot, like on conversation, even during the conversation, because I'll type something, capture a note from like, you know, person A is telling me something. And then person B, who's like just sort of riding along and like that's not their question to answer. They might be looking at what I'm typing and they just go in and fix something really. And it like, it's really nice. Like it just, it's, it, it's a boost. It's an efficiency of like, I don't have to go back through all the notes and verify everything. We don't have to like pause the conversation for someone to say, so actually, Scott, I noticed a few bullet points earlier when you mentioned this, like, you know, or worse that a month later it comes it turns out that i actually just had the wrong thing it's it's just it's already fixed and that's that's really nice that's a really nice way to work i don't love collaborative copywriting i'm a little i'm i don't know that i'm just brave enough for that or if i have just um found that it is inefficient certainly working with a designer i could do it like what two people can collaborate on copy in my experience any more than that like no get offline 
write down all the notes, go write the copy and bring it back. But for, yeah, for planning, strategy, any of those kinds of conversations, like um, I like to do that work publicly. It's a really good point, actually, about that line between what's kind of collaboration, idea generation, that side of things compared to actually writing the copy, because then, as you described, we use this term uh, pair writing. So maybe uh, sitting down with a subject matter expert to create some copy there and then, and they're obviously on hand to answer your questions and vice versa. But you very much want to steer clear from anything that starts to resemble franken copy and copy by committee and that side of things and actually keeping it down to a minimum of two works really well otherwise you're back into more like crit type formats and you just need to make it very clear to the people you're working with that's what you're doing and what's expected of them and then it helps you yeah maintain that autonomy over the copy and and everyone kind of know where the boundaries are yeah, I, I love that approach. I think that's one of my favorite things that the the broader discipline of content design has popularized, I, at least in my assessment, like that I think pair writing is more common now and that more organizations understand that that's an option. Um, and I, I think if that had been introduced to me earlier in my career, I can imagine some some projects, um, especially stuff dealing with, with technical or complicated subjects where that would have been uh, would have been a lot more efficient. Um, so I, I think that's a great one. Um, and, you know, and, and especially, yeah, like, separate, as you said, like separating out creation from the kind of thinky work, that's important now, too, because it's like, we really need to make these meetings count. I'm hearing that from a lot of people that um, it's just, it seems that a lot of, um, even if we thought we had, we're really efficient, like there's just kind of a lot of meetings we realize we're sort of kind of fluff and a lot of them are just sort of falling away. Um, and now it's like, let's get together when there's really some work to be done. Um, and so, yeah, I think being even more focused on what we're trying to accomplish in a given meeting, are we here to write? Are we here to crit? Are we here to approve? Um, I think content design helps people think about that and actually set up a process around the writing. Uh, but if you aren't following that methodology strictly, or if you have your own improvised processes, that's a really nice thing to do um, is just like, if you don't do it already, please have agendas on your meetings, uh, have a very specific goal in mind for the meeting. Um, that's going to keep everybody a little more, uh, a little more sane during all of this. I don't particularly care if you do things the way that I talk about doing them in the book. Um, I hope that what people take away from the book is that you should have a way of doing the writing and you should know what that way is. And that like as a team or even just as an individual practitioner, if you're the only word person in a, a big organization and everything comes through you and you don't have to collaborate with anyone on the words other than getting approval, I still think it is incredibly helpful to like make some sort of little plan for how you're going to do the writing, right? Um, all, the, all the questions that you asked today, all the stuff that we've talked about, um, I think like not improvising around that, not asking that question when you get to that point in the process, how am I going to learn about the audience? How am I going to get buy-in? Who needs to approve this? How do we um, keep the process efficient? That's all stuff you can think about before anything happens. And I, um, it's easy to say. It's sometimes hard to do. I don't always do it with my own personal writing projects, uh, but at least as part of a design team, if you take just a little bit of time, back of the napkin, sketch out, how am I going to approach this work? You know, am I just going to follow content design book by the book? That's a great way to do it. But, but make whatever choice you make, make that choice. Um, and in my experience, that makes things work a lot better. Because you can always change your mind, but it's good to at least have the plan. 
Absolutely. And also to think of that plan right from the beginning to the end of the project. So not only thinking about some of the more kind of kickoff questions like getting to know the audience and drafting the writing, but also am I going to be able to directly put this content in myself? Am I having to work with a developer? If I am, when would I have access to this mm-hmm. developer? Can I pair with the developer? So we're, you know, putting the content in at the same time. Um, how am I going to then test the content once it's live? It's not, yeah, there's a lot to think about, not well beyond the point of actually I've got an approved draft that is always good to know up front. Because then again, we talked, you know, right back at the beginning about what points you can be involved, what you can influence when. And actually, if you're thinking about this from the start, something like actually putting the content live, you've already tackled and, and put down any barriers way ahead of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, we talked a bit earlier about, um, you know, supporting lots of designers and, and like how you kind of keep that work efficiently. Um, like it's really, really important to know when you're done, um, which, which sounds obvious, but it's a lot of times we don't think about it until we're mired in a thing. And it seems like how much longer is this going to stretch on? Like, why am I still involved in this? I thought I was done. I did all the writing. The draft got approved. They're still asking me questions. It's really good to know when you are done with the thing and can step away from it or else know what your actual responsibilities are for the, for the words, for the text after a certain point. Um, I think UX designers, a lot of them, especially if you're not also front-end developers, like they know that only a certain amount of fidelity is required in the work that they do because it is really it's a specification for someone else to build and design and implement a thing um and with words that's a lot less clear like it's not always clear what fidelity is being asked of us right like is someone else going to proofread this or do i have to run this through like a full qa copy editing process right that's not always apparent sometimes we have to ask and figure that out so figure out when you can be done with the thing um because that will will help keep you more efficient in my experience Definitely. Um, brilliant. Well, that's certainly the end of my questions. So uh, <laughs> thanks. Well, thanks. Yeah, this was, this was lovely, Vanessa. I was glad we had a chance to, to chat. Appreciate you having me on the, on the podcast. And um, I hope anyone out there listening, if they want to talk to me more about this stuff, um, I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of. My email address is right out there and um, just drop me a line. Happy to chat. Brilliant. I'm sure plenty of our listeners will hold you to that. <laughs>